We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. My name is Matt Barr, and that was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between the outdoors, action sports, and activism. Now, in each show, I'm meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We discuss the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved, and the rewards that follow. My guest for this episode of Type 2 is Jake Black. Jake is a snowboarder from Colorado who initially parlayed his love for snowboarding into a professional career but soon decided he wanted to try and give something back and began to broaden his interests, notably as a journalist specialising in issues of sustainability in the snow industry and then with Protect Our Winters, a non-profit organisation that is the leading climate advocacy group in the winter sports world. I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with Protect Our Winters. Today, Jake is Programme Manager for Protect Our Winters. He's working to further the group's climate aims on projects around the world, which means he oversees initiatives like the Hot Planet Cool Athletes Programme, the Ambassador Programme, and basically acts as the link for POW US to the world. Now, I first met Jake up in uh, Lofoten in March 2019, where we were on a splitboarding trip with Patagonia. Yeah, we got on straight away, and not just because he loaned me his crampons during one particularly icy traverse. Cheers again for that, Jake. Uh, Like many people working in the sector, he's been motivated by his own love for the outdoors and his personal experiences as as a rider and a traveller, something that came through in the presentation that he gave, and I was really impressed with his take on the unique climate challenges faced by people in our particular world, which is why I asked him to come on this Type 2. So we arranged to meet later in the summer during his next trip to Europe for the European Pal Summit in Innsbruck. And it was a fitting backdrop for our conversation, this, as Innsbruck was on lockdown as everybody waited to see if the River Inn, swollen to record levels thanks to rapid snowmelt caused by unseasonably hot weather, would burst its bank. So we sat down by the river to discuss his career, and Jake's take on how to respond to the charges of hypocrisy that anybody attempting to affect change inevitably faces, particularly in our little world, and how we can reconcile these two seemingly opposing stances. Great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Here's me and Jake. Enjoy. Right. All right. We're rolling. Jake, how you doing? I'm good. Yeah. How well, are you? I'm all right. Yeah, it's quite a quite a nice spot, isn't it? We've ended up finding ourselves. Yeah. Good view of the River Inn about to burst its banks. <laughs> Ap- apocalyptic Innsbruck, isn't it? We, we may have to sprint for it if, yeah. if things get a little ugly this morning. Yeah, so I'll try and set the scene. We're in a park by the River Inn. It's um, mid-June and they've had such a crazy winter here. And that now it's got so hot that basically the River Inn is in danger of bursting its banks and we're surrounded by flood defences. There's a there's a general air of excitement slash sort of, not quite fear, but anticip- nervous anticipation in the town, isn't there? Because everybody's a bit like, what is going to happen here? Because it looks like it's going to go, doesn't it? Basically. Oh, yeah. It looks like this this river could happen at any minute and... There's sandbags surrounding all of the different storefronts. Yeah. We've heard cl- shops are closing because of this 
and everybody's on edge. Yeah, it's kind of mad. We went on the bridge last night and everybody, like, there was people gathered on the bridge just watching the river and if it goes, it's going to, they, you know, it will kind of destroy the old town. So, interesting period to be in uh, Innsbruck yeah. these last few days. So, you've been here, what, five days? Yeah, we got here last Thursday, so just under a week. And, um, yeah, we're we're six days in and it's it's been a, just an incredible trip here. Yeah, so, so you've been here for Protect Our Winters and what's it been like, the global summit, essentially? Yes. Yeah, so we came here to Innsbruck to meet with, uh, we have eight different chapters here in Europe. Yeah. And we wanted to get everybody together to have a gathering and, and talk through, you know, some of our best practices as well and, and really help the European chapters uh, work on their strategic plan so that we can come out with this unified message on how we can influence some some climate in some some positive action when it comes to climate change. And what's your role at Protect Our Winters? So I am the program manager. Okay. Yeah, which is a fancy term for I oversee all of our athlete engagements. So well, so with Protect Our Winners, as as you guys may know. Um, it's an organization that Jeremy Jones started, which is, which I know Jeremy's been on the podcast before, and and he started this in 2007, so we're just about 12 years old, and it's an athlete-driven movement to affect climate climate change, and our mission is to get everybody who loves the outdoors to become effective climate advocates. Yeah, and so so not just limited to ski and snowboard; it's like it's the whole umbrella of outdoor. Yep, outdoor recreation in general, or the outdoor community. You could, you know, I'm not sure. None of those terms are all that sexy, but just everybody sure. that loves skiing, snowboarding, fishing, biking, running, whatever. Yeah. Walk in the neighborhood. Everyone listens to this, basically. Yeah, everybody listens to yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, but yeah, so so as an, or I'm sorry, that goes back to my role, but I, I oversee all of the athletes that we work with. Uh, we have different ski resorts in the U.S. that I oversee. We have a CEO alliance, um, and then helping with the international chapters a couple in a couple of school programs that we have as well. Okay, and the organization is that you have almost like this parent U.S. chapter, is that right? Yeah. And then, and then you have individual territory or country chapters. Is that is that about how it works? Yes, yes. So, yeah, so in a sense, global headquarters would be in our office in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. And then we have, I think it's 14 international chapters now around the world. Okay. And they're, you know, they're smaller hubs in a sense, and, and they're run by different volunteers and helping get the message out there. So... What are the challenges in in that setup? Because one of the things that I, um, we've also talked about before is that there can be autonomy in the different chapters, right? So the so I guess the challenge for you, as we discussed when we last met, which was in March in Norway, and uh, and I think this is what you've been doing here is to kind of try and unify the approach between the US and all the individual chapters, right? Yeah. So so yeah, I mean the the answer to that would be as Protect Our Winners has started in the U.S. and the movement has grown globally, we've been really trying to figure out what are the best practices and ways that we can can have some influence in the U.S. And so each of the, the European chapters have been testing their own things as well. And now that we've really found a process and a, and a strategic framework that's, that's really going to help influence some, some serious good, uh, that's a big reason why I'm here right now is sharing that with our different chapters because they have been running um, independently and it's really great, actually, because the amount of work, and, and as I said, they're all volunteers, and the amount of work that they have all put in is incredible. Yeah, and that's on top of their day I mean, jobs. It's, it's very passion-driven, isn't it? You can really see that whenever you whenever you meet these guys and talk to them. Like, it's, it's definitely coming 
from the heart you know people and people want to make a difference don't they they want to they want to see how they can you know bring about change basically yes exactly and that's what's it's i think that's what makes protector winner so cool is that it brings all of these different communities and people and you know it doesn't matter your ability it doesn't matter if you're the jeremy jones or you know the weekend warrior all of these people are coming together because they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves and they they want to do some good so how is the how was this week? Did you did you get somewhere with that? Yes. This week was amazing, actually. And um, we, we've been really looking at what are all of the chapters doing and how can we have the biggest lever, in a sense, and leverage when it comes to climate action in Europe. And there's so many different great organizations out there that we don't need to be reinventing the wheel and, and you know, coming out doing the same thing that a lot of these others are doing. But how do we really add value to these other movements. And so looking under that lens, we started talking with all of the chapters and discussing what are some of the biggest common threads when it comes to, you know, everywhere from Norway to Switzerland to France and and Germany and Austria and, and everything in between. And as we continued our dialogue, we started discussing how mobility is such a key component of, of people that love the outdoors, but also uh, a really interesting area where we can all influence some some real change. And, and that's, you know, how do we get to the ski resort? How do we get from country to country? And, and you know, there, there's so much going on there that there's a lot of opportunity for, for, legislati- for legislative tra- changes. Sometimes that's a tongue twister. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, when we looked at the facts with that as well, transportation and mobility is the second largest emission sector across Europe. And so the first being presumably power. Yep. First yeah. is power. And so, and, and, you know, they're somewhat intertwined in many, many ways. Yeah, if sure. you can make certain changes, it would influence how the power is done as well. And, and that was where we started to see that each chapter, when we started looking at, um, a little bit of a tangent on this, the, every, every country within the EU had made their pledge to the Paris climate accords. And it's and compared to the u.s a lot of their actions are great they're actually still falling short of creating a 1.5 degree future every single country within europe and so when we look at it that way it's like okay everybody's doing great work but we got to push it a little bit further and this year each country has put together these necps it's their national or national energy and climate plans and that's basically how are they going to commit to their goals that they have said um, whether to the Paris Accord or to their, you know, constituents and what's happening within their countries. And we were looking at them and so many of them, there's transportation and mobility involved. And so we, we were thinking, well, this is a great area where we don't actually need to be, you know, reinventing any of this, but we can bring our community to the table to push these types of actions further. Okay, that's really interesting. So you've, you've basically taken an existing political level issue that's that's falling short and you're going to try and mobilize your activists if you like to to try and push that change which is a bit of a model for how the organization works generally right yes okay that's really interesting and also that that issue is a thorny one isn't it because it's so linked to regulation and government you know that industry gets so many tax breaks for example doesn't it you know and it's encouraged basically it's seen as an area of economic growth travel i mean and especially air travel um so yeah i guess it's like a prime fighting ground for you, for you guys isn't it to try and push that change yeah absolutely i mean so when we talk about how mobility is such an issue for people that get around we then can get into the model of how we like to influence action with protect our winners and as i said it's an athlete driven organization but really it's uh i'll call it a 
ground up and top down approach in that we can have athletes out there, you know, and, and the examples we have are in the U.S. You've got the Jeremy Jones. We've got a high the, profile. Yeah. yeah, the high profile athletes that are out there speaking up and, and using their platforms to speak about how they want to help it create a better future and how they want to do all of these good things. Um, and these athletes not only use their platform to do it, but we want to put tangible actions out there that people can get involved with. So yeah. let's say you have the Jeremy out there that says there's this incredible opportunity to push legislation on, on transportation and here's how you can do it. And it's typically writing and calling your representatives. You know, that's something it's, it's, it's not really ingrained in, in what everybody does within the U S and, and across Europe. And it's not that we need to force that upon everyone, but it is the areas where we realize that power can happen in numbers. And so when we have Jeremy do it, and then we have a couple of brands, you know, we have friends at, within the outdoor industry that are willing to support these things and speak out. And then you have different community members and, and just fans and things like that saying, well, yeah, I actually care about that too. And I want to see a, a better future and getting them involved. We can actually create disproportionate impact when it comes to influencing this type of work. Yeah. So basically it sounds like you try and find an issue where you can, you know, to use the phrase, push the needle enough with enough concerted action, use the numbers to make actually a big impact so you yes. try and find those issues where this approach will have the biggest outcome is that, yeah. is that fair to say totally and you know i'll share an example actually on this as well as um our home state of colorado we had a bill come to the to the house and to to pass a bill it has to go to through the house senate and then to the governor's office and so typically to get something through, there's been a little bit of dialogue and you know that if you could get it to the governor that they're willing to sign it. And this bill was called HB 1261 and it basically said Colorado would reduce carbon emissions by 90% by 2050 from 1995 levels. That's a whole lot of info on that one. But that's that's the tagline, I guess we'll call it on that. And we don't need to go into the details there. Yeah, another, but, another sort of target-based um, legislative change yep, that, yep. that isn't being hit if you like as, yeah. you, as, you, as you said in with the european travel thing yeah. yes exactly yeah. so it's so you know we've set this this pretty lofty target yeah and and it's because of legislators seeing wow well my constituents because legislators and you know elected officials are it's a popularity contest yeah if they're not representing what you are speaking up about then they're not doing the job that they were hired for yeah and so you know they were getting enough of an influence that this type of bill made it to the floor well we went and had some of our athletes speak at some of these hearings and talk about hey as you know as a climber as a snowboarder as you know these these pretty influential people they were talking about how they want to represent their community there and they would speak about these issues and then we'd talk about it on social media and, t and show people ways that they can get involved and then it passed the house and then it went to the Senate and there was some climate deniers in the office there that were trying to block this bill. But we, in the end, had 600 to 1,000 people write and call their representatives the day before the vote. So concerted grassroots action, basically. Yes, Find, yes. Finding the numbers to actually sway that cultural opinion, if you like. Yeah. And so we have some of, the, so we had, you know, this community come and show up and knock on doors and make telephone calls and write emails to their representatives to say, we care about this bill. It represents, you know, the, the jobs that we love, the places that we want to play in and the communities that we care about. When you're talking about culture and economics, that's a, you know, the outdoor community is a culture and it's economically rooted as well. But, yep. 
um, when you have all these pieces together and a community speaking up on it, they were able to influence it that in the end it passed. Right. And it passed by two votes. Okay. So it wasn't a huge margin. Yeah, yeah. But that's also where when we get into talking about how can we have influence, it's not that we need, It's there's no black or white way to view these things. It's not like it passes or it doesn't pass. You just need a marginal win. We don't need, you know, we don't need 48% of people to do it to turn to 90% of people, we need 48% of people to turn into like 50 some percent of people. Okay. And all of a sudden we can have a disproportionate impact. Right. So part of the job is finding these areas where you can have this impact, essentially, like you've identified in Europe, like you identified in Colorado. Is that kind of the overarching strategy of the organization then? Yeah. And so, again, most of our work has been rooted in the US and now we're working on growing it in Europe. So that strategy on how it will happen in Europe will be TBD, I would say, yeah. on the next six months. Um, but in, in the U.S., and this has to do with multiple prongs, but federally, it's really hard to do anything right now with the current administration. I mean, to do anything. Yeah. And especially when it comes to climate legislation. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the run. We have 50 different individual states with their own legislative processes. Sure. And so when we start looking at that, we can go, okay, well, this is communities that POW has influence in here's legislation on the table or elected leaders that we need to have conversations with or help push, you know, push forward on a certain type of agenda like ours and see where we can have that type of impact. And so even though the U S is, you know, quite large, we've got seven different States that we focus in on where there's policies and opportunities for our community to get involved and and help. And when we talk about kind of our theory of change is protect our winners, it takes, it takes, three different things it takes the financial and technological solutions it takes cultural change and it also takes political will so we need all three of those things and when it comes to solving climate change we have the financial and technological solutions figured out these businesses they know that solar panels and wind and all of these other renewable energies are going to end up taking over because today and this is i'm going to refer to a lot of u.s numbers when i talk about this yeah Uh, but already in the u.s Large-scale solar and wind cost less than building any new fossil fuel infrastructure and nuclear. It's cheaper. And that's that's under a, a current political situation that really doesn't incentivize that, but the markets are moving that way. Right. And so what we need now, though, is according to the IPCC, the International Panel of Climate Change, their report that came out last fall, and this is you know a body under the UN, their, their study came out and said, we have 12, well, you have till 2030 to make dramatic changes or we're going to have irreversible damage to the planet. So that means really we have under 11 years now. Yeah, it's not far away. <laughs> yeah. So we've got under 11 years to make these dramatic changes. I mean, it sounds like the future, but it's literally, you know, going to be tomorrow, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So, so we've got a short period of time to influence this massive thing. And so even if businesses and markets are moving that way, the enemy here is time. So if we have time, we really need to focus on the big fish. And when we start looking at, well, where is all of the emissions and where are these different things happening? There's numbers, I don't have the exact, but 75% of emissions come from under 100 companies in the world. And so when we start talking about the scale of influence, it's, it's these 100 companies that we need to be helping push forward. And the way that's going to happen is through consumer demand and through legislation. And so when we talk about there's financial and technological solutions. Well, to move them forward, you need the political will. And so we need the political will, and that means we need the candidates and the elected officials and the policies in place that will move these things forward. 
and that's incentivizing these different, you know, whatever it could be, electric vehicles, renewable energy sectors, um, all these different pieces and making sure that those are, those are policies that stick there. But the third piece is there, it can be great to get these types of policies through, but they'll only stay if they're culturally resilient. I was going to say, see, third pillar is basically that's where the catalyst comes from. Yeah. And so, and they're all, I wouldn't say it's a one, two, three process. They all are they're intertwined. All yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and it mixes depending on whatever's happening, but we need that cultural resilience. And, you know, there's plenty of examples. And in the U.S., Obama actually had this, this bill, he called it the Clean Power Plan, and it was going to dramatically reduce emissions. It was, it was actually the U.S.'s commitment to the Paris Accord, basically. And they were saying, we're going to put this across all of our states and it's going to be great. And we're going to reduce, you know, a massive amount of our energy. Well, when the Trump administration got elected, he just wiped that off the table. And that was because we didn't have the cultural resilience to make sure that that type of policy Yeah, stuck that was in. still culturally acceptable for him to do that. But he couldn't come in and like reverse the smoking ban, for example. Yeah. Because the, there's no cultural capital for him to do that. So, totally. So would you say that the role of, you know, your day-to-day power activist and indeed anybody who loves the outdoors, you, you used the phrase earlier to like help people become advocates for this issue... Is that their role to help push this? Obviously, there's the political element which you've identified on an issue basis. But is the role of people listening to this that that are passionate about this and do want to help in this mission, is the role to help facilitate that cultural change, would you say, primarily? Yes, absolutely. So that's always a question that we get is, you know, what is it that you guys do? And it's that top-down, bottom-up approach, but that... How I, how I like to think of this is when we talk about that culture, we're creating a culture. And in you know, the context that I've, I've often used is we talk about leave no trace. When people go camping, it's just culturally accepted that you're not going to leave your trash and you know, leave a mess when you went out into the wilderness and you're going to do the best you can. Well, that's, that's a great initiative. That's fantastic. Why can't advocacy be the same thing? Is it Do we need to be snowboarders and advocates? Or can we be a snowboarder and thus that means that you're an advocate and you would speak up about this? And so that's the that's kind of that tie together on where we can bring, you know, the athletes and influencers and we can create these movements on social media and we can point people in a direction that they can take action, that it would become this intertwined system and that every, every day anybody can get involved and take an action and help influence this stuff. Well, I mean, it does lead me to the obvious kind of charge, really, for this for this whole in this whole debate that I've certainly been, you know, called out on a few times myself and I'm sure you must get this all day long, but you know, the obvious thing to say is like, wouldn't the easiest thing for people that love the outdoors to be, to stop traveling, to go skiing or snowboarding, you know what I mean? So how, how do you square that particular circle? So this is one of the most common questions we get because it's, I mean, it's a reality and athletes and, you know, brands and things like that, they're, they're running businesses and traveling the world. And that's, that's just how this economy works and how, how the world runs right now. And the way to handle that is, is it's really, it's not black or white again on, on this issue. It's not that you can't travel and be a climate activist. You need to do what you can on an individual level to reduce your footprint, but you also should be getting involved. And so an example I'll use is, um, you know, we met when we went to, to Norway this last a couple of months ago for a summit with Patagonia and we were there and we're talking about okay well the snow sports community we really want to get more involved in this but we feel so hypocritical about this and that's you know a catchphrase we often use is this is all about progress over perfection and action over apathy 
when someone says, well, your footprint's not perfect, so you shouldn't be speaking up about this, my question in return would be, well, show me a perfect footprint because it doesn't exist. And that's because of the world that we're currently within. We all want to create this better future that we can reduce our impacts and do these things. Um, and then when we talk about scale, because that's the other issue here, when we talk about the timeline we have and the scale of the situation, our trip to Norway and back, you know, I did, I flew from the U.S. And I flew from the U.S. and let's call it, it would probably be about a two metric ton footprint for that trip. Which is, which is not small, but that's about an international flight from the U.S. to Europe. Um, and let's say at this exact moment, there's a thousand people listening to this right now. I'm just making up a number. And we have a thousand people that, that are listening in and, and they all went on the same flight with me. You know, it's a big plane. If it's 2,000 people all of a sudden. Um, we have now emitted 2,000 metric tons into the atmosphere. So that sounds really big. And it's, and we can do something about that. We can offset that. It's pretty affordable, you know, per person, it would probably cost 10 to $20, something like that, which is not bad. And you would offset and invest in renewable energy projects or sequestering carbon or, you know, mitigating different methane gases and stuff. There's all kinds of great initiatives out there and things that we should be doing. But we have now been talking about all of these things that we could be doing on our side. And we haven't even acknowledged the fact that these coal power plants are still emitting, you know, in the U S the top 10 coal power plants emit over 20 million metric tons each. Um, we haven't done anything to talk about the fact that these other systems are still in play and that those are the areas where we're going to have these massive, massive changes. But, but we're so worried about what each other are doing. And it, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it's a, it's a divide and it sounds like you're referring to almost like a divide and rule approach, right? Mm -hmm. You know, by putting the onus on, by criticizing individuals that try to take action for being hypocrites, let's just call it that, the, the real culprits are, are still creating the issue, you know? And it, it's, it's kind of a playbook as old as the hills, isn't it, really? To, to make individuals feel responsible and to push. It's a theme that's already coming up a lot in these Type 2 podcasts um, that basically it is divide and rule. It's like, well, let's get everybody arguing amongst themselves and meanwhile the real issue continues to grow and nothing gets changed basically yeah. i mean you know a phrase that i use there is we're often we're all within the same circle but we're shooting within and so we're pointing fingers at each other we're blaming each other for these things and telling each other how we all need to be taking these actions when we all when we're all on the same team in the end do you think that people that because it's such a common thing and like i say not to dwell on this too much but i do think it's an interesting question that people listening to this will probably be, you know, want to know how to counter it. But do you think it's something that's just an easy way to solve your own guilt about like why you're not taking action to criticize somebody for doing this? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, if, if you can point the finger at somebody else and say, well, you're not perfect. It's almost like an excuse for like, why should I bother? Is that something that you find? Ex I, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I don't have a study to back that up or anything, but yeah, it's I would anecdotal, say, yeah, it's very anecdotal. Yeah. But I, I more often than not think that when someone's saying, oh, well, you drive a truck. And because of that, that, that means that your opinion is null and void here. And, and, and that then means that that person asking that question is looking for relief of their own potential guilt in this situation where they, they don't want to feel like they're doing something wrong. Nobody wants to feel like they're the bad guy. I mean, yeah, unless you're Dr. Evil or something <laughs> like that. But very often no one wants to feel like they're doing wrong they want to feel like they're 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 not 
disproportionately impacting and they're they're not being a, a nuisance on the planet and so this is an excuse for them to say well if you're not perfect i don't need to be perfect and that's that's not how we're going to find common ground and that's so often we had an event last night at the at the patagonia store here and did a talk and a lot of the questions were focused on you know well the you know ski resorts they're making snow that's wrong and ski resorts are part of a vicious cycle in this you know when we think about this in systems thinking You've got warming temperatures around the planet, and so because of that, ski resorts are having to make snow to handle these changes, which they're having to use more energy, which heats the planet even further, and then it continues this vicious circle. It's this cycle of more snow, more heat, you know, less snow. You need to make more snow, use more energy, less snow. All of these different issues are are cycling up, and if they stop, what's going to happen is those businesses are going to suffer. But if a ski resort, instead of focusing and saying the ski resort's doing it wrong, if the ski resort would use its platform to influence a larger change, they would have a much bigger impact. And an example I use there is um, Squaw Valley, the ski resort out in California. They, a couple of years ago, installed these electric car chargers and went, okay, this is great. We're, we're stepping up what we're doing. And their consumers started saying, well, where do you guys get this energy from? And they ended up finding out even though as a California ski resort, energy grids aren't quite the same as state lines, um, they were getting energy from a pretty dirty coal plant in the back. Right, okay. Yeah. And so they went and looked at this and went, whoa, that's not good. Like, that's not supporting what we do as a business, and that's not supporting how we want to, you know, build and build our community and sustain this. And they went and, and basically asked their, their public utility commission, their PUC, their energy provider. They said, well, we, we really want you guys to change where we get this energy from. And the reason that they ended up having leverage on this is because they found out they were one of the top two consumers of that entire business. There you go. So, yeah. so, so that it's the kind of perfect example of how it can work yep, positively yep. then. Yeah. So, it, so it's, not, it's not about ending with we need to green our own home and that's it because the reality and i use resorts as an example again is the reality is if every ski resort in the world went 100 percent renewable it probably would have a minimal impact on what's happening globally yeah and so ski res- and and i say that is we should be putting solar panels and things on all these resorts and ski resorts should be working on best best practices and implementing sustainable practices but they need to be doing that and getting involved in these bigger pictures and using their business as a leverage and a voice for good. And so not, so to finish the, the example with Squaw, these guys started talking with their energy provider and the company that they are purchasing from is now working to shut down this coal plant much earlier than expected and transition the entire energy grid to a more renewable platform or portfolio. Uh, which means not only is Squaw going to get better energy, but everybody that buys from that business will now get better energy. So that's the type of scaling that we need to be considering when we talk about action. So earlier you mentioned that the main bulk of carbon pollution is coming from a, a small number of companies. And, and it sounds like, and Jeremy kind of said this when I spoke to him for the podcast as well, that individual action is obviously has value, but in the wider scheme of things, it's, a, you know infinitesimal like difference that it makes so is is the power of that individual action stuff like recycling your plastic offsetting carbon whatever it is 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 the power of that this cultural kind of impact that you can make to try and change this conversation so that people you know don't argue that it's pointless ultimately at some point in the future because if you use the example of again something like smoking or even like wearing seat belts in cars you know probably when that came in people would be like well what's the point you know it's and and at some point it becomes 
a tipping point where actually it's just not culturally acceptable to think that way. Is that is that the value of this individual action? Would you say? Yeah, I mean, and I don't want and I don't want to pit individual action against these things. The way I like to think about this is that the actions that we take on a daily basis should be the reminders and the fuel that we need to be getting involved in these larger issues. And so, I would say it is. It's not like recycle or do this it's not either or yeah it's not either or it's we should be doing both and we should all do these things because you know it makes me feel good when i compost at home i feel like i'm doing that i have way less waste when i when i'm making food uh i'm putting it in making soil that's going to help grow something else in the future like that feels really good to be a part of doing something like that uh and that can be something that that fuels me to get more involved in these other issues and it's you know climate is our issue at protect our winners but there's a lot of things going on around the world that we need to be taking action on and you know the the dim the dim outlook on this is that if we don't figure out climate change a lot of these other issues are just going to get worse yeah and so this is where we see it as an as the apex issue of our generation yeah so how did you get involved in this let's quickly hear that story because your background's professional snowboarding right yeah so well so i'll take it back quite a ways i uh, i grew up in keystone colorado and i well my, my mom was a ski instructor there she taught there for 35 years and she still teaches skiing she just teaches at another mountain in aspen um she basically took me to daycare every day at ski school and so that's my background of getting you know into the mountains as i lived down the street and got to play in the snow all of my childhood with my two little brothers. Uh, and it was some of the best times of my life, I would say. And when I was seven, I started to learn to snowboard. And that really changed my life forever, I would say. And that from there, I started doing competitions and it started at little local events. And then I started doing, you know, all kinds of different professional events and going all over the place and seeing and, and experiencing and, and, and meeting people and, and trying all of these new things in a sense, exposing myself to a whole new world. And while all this was going on, I started to see that there was changes in the climate and learning more about climate science and, and what's going on. I went, man, the snow could be screwed if we yeah, don't do something about saw it. this. Yeah. And, and I say that is snowboarding. What I, what I always say about snowboarding is snowboarding gave me everything. I mean, it, it, it showed me how to work hard. It showed me how to set goals. It introduced me to people around the world. Uh, I was able to learn culture. I was able to find a community and it, you know, it gave me all of these things. And for so long in my life, I felt like I was taking, I just felt like I was always taking from this community and that it was giving me all these incredible experiences and all these things that were so fulfilling, but I wasn't necessarily finding a way to give it back. Right. That's interesting. I think that comes to everybody at some point with these things. If you've got any kind of inquisitive or question in mind, it does feel like it becomes a bit unsustainable doesn't it yeah you know, like because it is such a you know self-centered activity isn't it especially when you like you say when you factor in like world travel and you know seeing the impacts with your own eyes you, you definitely reach a point where you're like actually you know what what's the point in this <laughs> like, yeah you know so that was it so that, that was kind of the epiphany where you thought i should probably start trying to put something back yeah and so I would say I like to pile everything on in life. Yeah. And while I was competing. Let's keep, keep busy. Yeah, I like to keep <laughs> it pretty busy. And so while I was competing and, you know, having these personal revelations or whatever, you know, we want to call them, 
I was also going to school and, and I started going to school for sustainable studies. That's what my bachelor's is in. Right. And so I was, you know, studying these things and doing these competitions. And around that, you know, around that time, Protect Our Winners was also starting. And I knew a couple of the other athletes involved. It was actually Gretchen Blyler who I was speaking with. And she was telling me she was a board member and is still a big part of our work at POW. Um, about the organization and about what it was standing for. And I just, I think I remember like a light bulb going off. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Like it's a way that I can give back to this world that gave it to, that gave me everything. And so I got more involved in, and this was about seven years ago, I started speaking at some of the schools. And that's a big program that we have with Protect Our Winners is called Hot Planet Cool Athletes. And we'll go to high schools and we'll talk to students about the things we've seen and, the, and you know, what's happening with climate change and how we can all make a difference. And, you know, it's from the individual actions all the way to getting kids writing letters to their legislators. But um, that was how I initially got involved is I spoke at a few schools here and there and went to a couple of hearings and doing these things. And it just, like, fueled me. And I, and I say that as when I went to school... It was so interesting because I loved the studies, but some days I would leave school and I'd be so excited and like, wow, there's opportunity to change the world and we're going to have this beautiful oasis, you know, this utopian future. And then the next day we'd watch some other film or talk about some other subject and I would leave and I would be just in the dumps. I would be so depressed and so darkened by what's happening within the world and how we're ignoring these issues or how we're just not acting in a way that's really beneficial to, to the whole, you know, the tragedy of the commons in the sense. Yeah. Um, and so all, while I was having these mixed, you know, ups and downs and oscillations of what was happening with inside me, I was learning about POW and I went, wow, this is, this is a great organization. And so seven years ago, got involved as an athlete. And then every time I did something, it just fueled me. It gave me a little bit of excitement and gave me this like feeling and purpose. And so Three years ago, I went, I want to do more, and they asked me to take over the school programming. So I started scheduling all of the Hot Planet Cool athletes around the U.S. and, you know, hosting these all over and finding these communities and learning the questions and concerns that people would have. And then as of a year ago, I took on all of the programming with PAL. And so, yeah, so now it's, that's kind of been the, the long story short. Yeah, yeah. It's not all that short, <clears throat> but taking my story of, like, how I got involved now. And, and I think it's the, the other thing I would say about snowboarding is it as much as I love it to the nth degree it's not like that every single day and I think that's natural for any love passion whatever is some days are some days are really good and some days are bad yeah and as I was saying like there was times actually I remember I was in Whistler doing some shoot and I was at the top of the line and it was this incredible view there was you know a ton of powder right in front of me and we're just waiting for the sun to, you know, we had a cloud and we were waiting for the sun to come so we could shoot this line. And I remember standing there and thinking like, I should be so excited to be here and I feel so guilty. Right. And I feel so guilty because like, this is something that I get to experience alone and that it's so selfish. And so I would say like my, and, and that would, I'd say kind of become part of my evolution of my relationship to snowboarding. And I think that's where it ties to what's happening at Protect Our Winners is, not only did my, my relationship with snowboarding started as an individual finding a community. And now I would say it's, I found that community and, and we've got to this thing and we want, and I want to keep pushing. And so how am I going to push that? Well, the relationship has to evolve. And it's not that snowboarding is the end. It's that snowboarding can be the platform on which we can do all of these great things. And there's this huge community around the world that, that, you know, protect our winners is the face of it. 
that can come together on this. And so it's just a continuation, I would say, of these experiences and these relationships and this, this like everlasting hope. So the question I always ask people are on type two, because I think it's, it's really useful to get the different perspectives. For somebody listening to this, who's fired up in the way that you were, what, what's your advice? What, what, what could they do? What, what's a good use of their resource and, and energy as mm-hmm. you discovered yourself? So the advice I would give to a listener here, well, the first thing I would say is you're not alone in this. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's the concern everybody has. I, I don't think I ever felt that way, but I, it never hurts to have the reminder that you're not alone in, in wanting to do some good and not necessarily knowing how to do it. Um, the, the second part of advice I would say is, is get involved in something. I mean, anything. It can be, it, it can be whatever daily practices you want to change, but then consider donating to a different organization or consider making a call or writing a letter to your representative, no matter where in the world. I mean, it's pretty rare. I feel these days we're sitting here in Austria that you could not get in touch with them and tell them that this is a concern because they, they got to figure out what their people need to, to be acting on somehow. Yeah. Um, but you know, put it, pushing yourself a little bit in that, in, in other ways beyond your physical. Cause that's, I would say it's, you know, the physical relationship is with the athletics in many ways, but the, the psychological is so much more, you know, the, the brain, the, 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 the mind games yeah, yeah. are a big part the, of this. The mental nourishment. Yeah. And I'll use an analogy to answer this as well is that we were in uh, Nevada because they actually, we got involved to help them push through some legislation that they're going to go a hundred percent renewable by 2050, which is super progressive for that state. Um, and we had David Wise, who is a two time gold medal Olympian from Reno, Nevada there and speaking. And he went and we, we ended up meeting the governor, you know, who's the guy who's going to sign the bill and put all this stuff through in the U S and he was shaking his hand and he goes, David, you know, I know that skiing is your, your livelihood and things like that. And he goes, but there is nothing more important you could have done today. He goes, this helped just dramatically. And all he had to do was go and tell his story. Right. So, So the advice I would give is you don't need to be an expert in climate science. You don't need to be an expert at policy. You don't need to be an expert at this thing. You just need to know your own story. And you need to know that, you know, as Jake, a kid who learned to snowboard in Colorado and his mom was a ski instructor and his dad was a fly fishing, uh, you know, fly fishing guide that their businesses were their business and our livelihood was impacted by climate. And that I found this community and that I want to protect and care for this community. And that's, that's why I want you to take action. That's all that people need to know. You don't need to, I mean, yes, educate yourself, expose yourself to this information, read these things, but don't ever feel like you have to be an expert on it. So there you go. That was the third episode of type two, my show in association with Patagonia. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider letting me know by dropping me a line at podcast at wearelookingsideways.com or leaving me a message over at my Instagram channel at we look sideways. As you probably gather in by now, I'll be releasing new episodes of Type 2 every month or so. And they'll appear in my usual Looking Sideways channel, which you can subscribe to via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your usual podcast pur- purveyor. If it's your first time checking out what I do, make sure you get stuck into the back catalogue. There's almost 100 episodes of interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavours. I reckon you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Nice one. Mm-hmm.